I'd like to start this evening by inviting some flights of imagination from each one of you. I want you to start by thinking, if God were to give you everything that you desired right now in your personal life, what would that look like? And I want you to be honest. If God were to give you everything that you desired right now in your personal life, what would it be? You might even, if you have a notebook, you might start writing that down. What are some things that come to mind, perhaps for your career? If God were to give you everything that you desired in your career today and in the days ahead, what would that look like? If God were to give you everything that you desired in your financial life, in your bank account, in your retirement fund, what would that look like? What would that look like for your relationships? What would it look like for your marriage if God gave you everything you could possibly desire right now for your marriage? If you are single but desiring to be married, what would that look like? What is everything that you could desire to have in your relationships? What about in your church? If God were to give you everything you desire in your church, in your personal ministry and in your church's ministry, what would that look like? I want you to imagine that right now. What about your future? What if God gave you everything that you desired right now about your future? What would that look like? And I'm doing this intentionally because I want you to see this evening that exactly what you are desiring right now, if God were to grant it to you, might be the object of your greatest destruction. If God were to grant you right now, tonight, everything that you were desiring about your career, about your finances, about your relationships, about your church and your personal ministry, it may be a snare, a trap. It may be something that leads to your greatest failing. And my premise tonight is simple. This is the story of Gideon. When we look at Gideon, we remember very clearly how Gideon began. We think of the story of his incredible success at the hands of God's grace. God calling him out of obscurity. A man who confessed, I am the least in my father's house and we're poor. I have no right to be a deliverer to God's people. And God says to him, go in this your might. That's exactly where I want you to be. You're little in your own eyes. You're weak. And in your weakness, I will be strong. You are a mighty man of valor. Go and deliver my people. And the story of Gideon, we see these dramatic accounts of him delivering the people of God from the enemy and from the multitude of those that had been controlling God's people. We see success. Everything that God gave to Gideon matching the greatest flight of imagination that Gideon could have. But we don't often think about how Gideon ended. We think about how Gideon began, and it encourages us, how often do we think about how Gideon ended and allow it to warn us? To warn us that what we see and desire as God's greatest blessings 
may turn out to be the objects of our great snare and temptation. The title of the message tonight is The Snare of Success. The Snare of Success. And I want to warn you, through the inspiration of God's word, that ultimately the things that we may be longing for as success in our lives may turn out like Gideon unless we are so very careful to our own spiritual demise. Let's start, first of all, by looking at success that has been granted. Success that has been granted. What did God do in Gideon's life? And we'll just do a rapid tour. I look around tonight. I think most of us know the story of Gideon. But turn in your Bibles, if you don't have them open already, to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, and we will just very briefly and at a high level go through the story of Gideon. Now, what is going on at this time? Well, it is the story of the judges. Now, remember that when God is giving us the story of the judges, they are oftentimes geographically isolated. Sometimes we might look at judges and we say, how could all of this happen within a period of about 450 years? I don't understand. And I think the best explanation is that the stories of judges were taking place throughout the land of Israel, sometimes perhaps overlapping because, of course, the territory of Israel was very large and because what was happening way in the north of Israel may not be the same thing as was happening way in the south. Well, here we're talking about Gideon, uh, who was a member of the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh was a large geographic tribe cutting across the heart of Israel. If you can imagine the north and you've got uh, of, of Dan and you've got, um, uh, you've got uh, Judah way down in the south and across the middle, the midsection of Israel is Manasseh, not only on the west side of the Jordan River, but also on the east side of the Jordan River. You remember half the tribe of Manasseh received their possession on the east side of the Jordan River. So here is Gideon, and Gideon is living in a time when the enemies of God, the Midianites, are exercising near total dominion and control over Gideon's portion of the land. And of course, God, in what was likely an, an appearance of Jesus Christ, a theophany before his incarnation, appears to Gideon gives him this promise, what does he say? He says to Gideon, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And of course Gideon says, who, me? Oh my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And the Lord looks upon him and said, go in this your might. It does not seem like might, but God recognizes that Gideon is looking to him. You're the only one who can deliver us. Only you have the power. Where is it? He was acknowledging his need for grace. And notice he says, God says to him in verse 14 of chapter 6, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. 
I have no might. I have no individual value or worth to be able to accomplish this. How is this going to happen? Now notice, the Lord says unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Incredible promises. Well, and of course, what is the victory that ultimately takes place? Well, there's a spiritual victory that Gideon wins. What is that? Gideon is in his small town of Ophrah of the, the Abbey Ezraites in Manasseh. And God tells Gideon to knock down the altar of Baal, the idol to Baal that is right there in town. And Gideon goes at night, yes, he's still a little bit fearful, and knocks it down. There is a spiritual victory that is won. Of course, there is a military victory. We see in Judges 6 and Judges 7 and Judges 8 um, uh, Gideon winning a, a, a remarkable uh, victory against Midian. A, a group, an army that can't even be counted for multitude against 300 people initially. And God brings a stunning, miraculous victory in which the swords of the Midianites are turned against one another. But not only that, we forget Gideon not only won a spiritual victory, not only won a military victory, he won a political victory. You say, how so? Well, what happened after Gideon put the, the Midianites to flight in that initial battle in Judges chapter 7? What happened next? He called the surrounding tribes. So Gideon was a Manassite. And if you know anything about reading in the book of Judges, you know that the tribes didn't always get along very well. They were clans. They were dynasties. And sometimes they were at odds with one another. Well, what happens when Gideon, the Manassite, is winning a victory? By the way, um, and even in Judges chapter 6, Gideon blows a trumpet and calls people from surrounding tribes. We see in chapter 7, he brought together Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Ephraim. Ephraim, which was really the hub of Israel at that day, where the tabernacle was, where the place of God's name was at Shiloh. So we see this remarkable political victory, this remarkable military victory, bringing different tribes together to fight a common enemy together. And what is the result of this great, miraculous success that God has granted? Secondly, notice, success recognized. Now, this is not anything different than just human nature. Go over to chapter 8. And look with me at verse 22 where Calvin Todd began reading for us. Gideon has just slain Zeba and Zalmunna, the remaining kings of Midian. He's all utterly wiped their army out. And verse 22, the men of Israel said unto Gideon. Now stop there. The men of Israel. It's not just the men of Manasseh. It's not just one tribe. This is a broader political movement to draft Gideon. They said unto him, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. Now, if you were to see how our political system worked, you would see that to the victor go the spoils. If you win an election as a national candidate, guess what? People are going to follow you. 
They're going to do what you want to say. Because success is always something that human beings are striving after. And so now here, the people of Israel see that Gideon has had miraculous, not only military success, but political success. And they say, come on, you've delivered us from Midian. By the way, you have. Who delivered Israel from Midian? God had. And yet the people said, you have. You've delivered us from Midian. Now beware. Beware. We have such a tendency when we see success in whatever part of our lives it is, including in our churches, to attribute it to human beings. You've done it. You human being have done it. And Gideon knew from the very beginning that he couldn't do a thing. He was poor. His father's house was poor and he was the least of his father's house. This was his might. Faith in the grace, the unmerited favor, and the dynamic power of God. These people of Israel say, you become king. By the way, this appears to be the first time the men of Israel made this request to abandon the judge's system and actually install a king. They saw such a remarkable victory. They said, Gideon, you're the one to be our king. Now notice verse 23. Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now, what do you make of this? Is this right of Gideon or wrong of Gideon? Are these words right or wrong? Right. They're right. Gideon got it. He said, God's your king, not me. Now, if you were just to take the words of Gideon right there at face value and the story were to end there, you'd say, success didn't do anything to Gideon. They came and they tried to make him king and he said, no, 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 no. I'm not the guy. Jehovah is. He's the king. Here's the problem. The story keeps on going. And you find that Gideon sure acted like a king for the rest of his life. He sure acted like he was taking on exactly what by words he was saying, nope, I'm not the king, God's the king. Notice it comes immediately next. And, they, and Gideon said unto them, verse 24, I would desire a request of you, that ye would give me every man the earrings of his prey. Who are the prey? The Midianites. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So these Midianites had earrings of gold. And so when they killed and slaughtered this army, they collected the gold. And they answered, we will willingly give them. Why? Because he was their hero. This was effectively a kind of taxation. Notice what he said. And they spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold. Beside ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian. And beside the chains that were about their camels necks. A massive plunder. Now how much is seventeen hundred shekels of gold? By some estimates I've seen, this is about 43 pounds of gold. 43 pounds. 
Do you know how much 43 pounds of gold is worth in modern currency? By one estimate, we're just talking very rough numbers, it's about a million dollars. I want you to imagine a prey, so this great military victory, who is Gideon? Gideon is the poorest guy. He is the least of the poorest family in Manasseh. He's never seen money, at least that we can tell. And now he sees, you know what? These guys might give me some of this spoil. And now they throw down a million dollars. Bam. And he takes it. Now what does he do with it? And Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Ophrah. Now, what's an ephod? If you were to look back into the Old Testament law, you would see the ephod was the breastplate, the shirt that the priests wore. And in the ephod would be, remember, the Urim and the Thummim, the ways of discerning the word of God, the mind of God for a particular situation. It was a holy garment worn by the priests. Now, notice, just think of, put yourself in Gideon's shoes. He knows that God alone has won him this victory. And now he says, just give me a little bit of it, will you? And they give him a million dollars. And he, still, I think, recognizing the, the, that God's power was to do for this, said, well, let me at least be spiritual with some of it. Let me at least have a religious purpose. Now, it seems clear to me that Gideon wasn't trying to make this to be an idol. He wasn't trying to lead the people away from Jehovah. How do we know that? Because we see here at the end of this chapter that the people of Israel kept following Jehovah as long as he was alive. He remained a good influence on public religion in terms of how it came to Jehovah. Now, why would he have made an ephod? What was he thinking? Well, do you remember who his conflict was with? In what, who, what, what, what tribe was the biggest conflict for Gideon when he was fighting the kings of Midian? Do you remember? Which one was he get, did he get in an argument with? Ephraim. Ephraim was the most significant tribe at this time. Where was the tabernacle of God and the priestly worship happening? Ephraim. Shiloh, where the temple was. The tabernacle, I should say, was. It's just speculation, but it may not be a bad guess to think that Gideon said, I want some religious influence in my tribe. Not just over in Ephraim, where we've had some challenges, some political challenges already. But whatever the motivation was, notice what happened. And all Israel went thither a-whoring after it. They, it became idolatry. For them, which thing became, notice, a snare unto Gideon and to his house. So you see, Gideon accepting this massive taxation that was making him fabulously wealthy, you saw him bringing religious and spiritual influence into his hometown where people would flock. Remember, that was, it became a snare, not only to Gideon, but to Israel. But not only that, look down to verse 29. And Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, that's Gideon, went and dwelt in his own house. And Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten. Seventy sons. It's a lot of kids. And, of course, we see why. For he had many wives. Yeah, you think? Seventy sons? Not only did he, have 70, uh, did he have many wives, look at verse 31, and his concubine 
his mistress. Not a wife. His mistress that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Now stop there for just a minute. Do you know what the name Abimelech means? My father is king. Gideon had a son of a concubine who he named My Dad is King. And this was the man who said when he was offered to be king, whoa, 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 I'm not going to be king. The Lord is your king. And then what did he do? He got rich off the people. He brought spiritual worship to his hometown. He got a bunch of wives and had a bunch of kids. And he named one of them, my dad is king. Not only that, when you go back, keep on going down to chapter 9. And notice what Abimelech, the son of this concubine, argues to the people of Shechem, the place of his mom's family. Speak, I pray you, he says, in the ears of all the men of Shechem. Whether is better for you, either that all the sons of Jerubbaal, which are threescore and ten persons, seventy people, reign over you, or that one reign over you. What was, Joab, what, what was the expectation of all the people? Gideon's died, and who's going to reign? His kids? What a remarkable turnaround. For a man who said, I'm not going to reign over you and my kids aren't going to be your king, the Lord is. And then what happens? It seems like everything he does from that point is exactly contradictory, if not in word, but in deed, to what he knew God's will was. Now, what do I take from this? Success granted, success recognized, and finally, let's look at success ensnaring. Success in snaring. What happened to Gideon? What did success do to him in a way that seems ultimately to have destroyed him or at least severely weakened him spiritually? Let's say, first of all, this. First, it shifted his focus. What I want to suggest to you tonight is that success in what you desire in any area of your life can shift your focus from where it needs to be. What was Gideon's focus when he was hiding from the Midianites and God appeared to him the first time? His focus was, God, I'm nothing. You're the only one who has power. And if you are going to act, then I'm willing to go because you can do anything. His focus was by faith on the powerful grace and deliverance of Almighty God. And when that was his focus, he could do anything. And God brought great victories to him. How did his focus shift with his success? Notice what he said. I've just got one request of you guys. Can you give me the golden earrings? It was no longer a God focus. It was a self focus, a profit focus. What can I receive from what my success has obtained for me? And the real danger of any kind of success, of any kind of profit, is that your focus shifts from what has God done to what can I receive? How can I profit from my success. And ultimately, you will be the place 
of our great destruction. Do you know this is so often true of institutions? This is so often true of churches. This is so often true of ministries, whether church ministries or outside parachurch ministries. A founder has a vision to do something great for God, relying on God's power and ultimately depending on him. And God brings a great movement of a a work for God, a revival for God, something that happens. And what so often is the reaction to success? Now we have an institution. Now we have a real church. Now we have a real great organization. We need to put someone in charge. And what happens? The focus shifts from God, what are you doing to advance the kingdom through us, to what are we doing to build our organization, to build our church, to build our institution. How are we gaining success from what we have received here. And it is destructive. The moment we take our eyes from God, how will you use little me to accomplish and and build your kingdom? The moment we move from that to the place of success that says, we have this big institution, now how do we maintain it? How do we build this church to be bigger than it is now? Friends, it's not about a church. It's not about an institution. It's not about an organization. It's not about a person. It is about the kingdom of God being advanced across everyone, across multiple churches, multiple people, multiple institutions and organizations. Beware. I say this very sincerely. What would success look like for you for Straight Gate Church? What would it look like for this church to be flourishing the way you think God would want it to be? Beware. It could be the seeds of its great downfall and destruction when our focus shifts to, we've got a great church going right now. How do we keep on building the church? No, 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 no. Our focus needs to remain remain razor sharp on how do we build the kingdom no matter what it says, what, no matter what it does for our church, no matter what it does for our institution, no matter what it does for our reputation, no matter what it does for our pocketbooks, how do we build the kingdom of God, not an institution? Beware lest your focus shifts. Not only, first of all, did it shift his focus, secondly, success seems to have captured his heart. It seems to have captured his heart. The great danger of success is ultimately you will be entrapped to the desires that you can now obtain through your success. Let me just put it really simply to you. If Gideon had remained least in his father's house and um, in the poorest family in Manasseh, do you think he would have had, had many wives bearing 70 children? Do you think he would have been able to select concubines who he wanted to from Shechem to fulfill his sexual desires? Not a chance. In fact, in that day, as we understand it, a harem, a king with a large harem, wasn't even so much entirely about his sexual desires. It was about status. It was like a guy who buys a Ferrari. Why? So he can show off how much money he has. 
I can afford to buy a Ferrari. It's a status symbol. A guy who has many wives and 70 children is really saying, look at everything that I have. Beforehand, Gideon was content to work in the grace that God was offering to him. And now his heart being carried away toward carnality says, I can get these wives. I can get these concubines. I can support them. Therefore, I will. Therefore, I will. Beware, beware. Your financial success can be an avenue toward temptations that you may not be able um, or you may fall headlong into. Your relational success, your career success, other parts that you think, oh, if only I had that. You have no idea how much that can be a gateway into the kinds of stumbling that you say, I could never go there. Oh, yeah, you can. I can too. Beware. When your success captures your heart, don't be surprised when it opens the door to other kinds of temptations that so far you have been spared from. Yeah, there are huge dangers in popularity. There are huge dangers in wealth. There are huge dangers in reputation and in broader success. So not only did this success shift his focus, not only does it appear to have captured his heart, but finally, I want us to see that it weakened his family's foundation. It weakened his family's foundation. What happened? 70 kids, princes, the 71st child, Abimelech, my father is king, him, What happens in Judges chapter 9? He goes to his mom's side of the family and says, wouldn't you rather just have me be who? King. King. Gideon says, I'm not going to be king and my kids aren't. What does his son who's named my father is king say? Why don't I be king? I'll be king. And what is the tragic end of Gideon's family? Abimelech goes and kills all 70 of his father's kids but one. Utter destruction for a great man of God. And what happens to Abimelech? Abimelech dies when an old lady drops a piece of a millstone on his head. And he says, sword bearer, you kill me. So they don't say a woman did. And he dies. What a tragic end to a man who had such a remarkably miraculous beginning. Such an incredible provision of success. Now, what is the point that I'm drawing here? I want to say simply this. Dads, moms, there may be compromises that you make in your spiritual life as a result of financial or other success that you can handle without destroying your walk with God. But your kids may not be able to handle it. Gideon didn't walk away from God. Gideon kept on following Jehovah. Yeah, he was snared into a compromised worship, but as long as he was alive, they followed Jehovah. Gideon could handle his compromise, at least if you'll understand it in a broader sense. But his children couldn't. And ultimately, the compromises that we make after foundations that we have in our spiritual and Christian lives may not ultimately result in our entire spiritual doom, but our children may come into our compromises and take them places we never could have dreamed or never could have feared. Seventy of his children 
slaughtered, including Abimelech ultimately at his death. Now, I'm sure if Gideon could go back in time, he never would have taken the first step of asking for those earrings. He would have said, I should have been content to remain the least. I should have been content to go back into obscurity and anonymity. I should have been content not to take those wives, not to have that concubine. I should have been content in faith, resting on the grace of God to work through me what he wanted. But Gideon didn't get to hit the rewind button. And neither will you. And neither will I. See, the story of Gideon I see as such a great encouragement and inspiration what God can do through the least when they trust by faith in his divine grace. It is also a sobering warning of how tragic the loss when those who were least get success going to their head and now think that their focus can change, their heart can be captured, and ultimately their family's foundation can be weakened. But finally, I just want to say this. My message to you is God may have success for some of you in the future. God may have financial success for some of you. He may have a ministry that is succeeding beyond your wildest dreams. He may have things for you. I'm not saying avoid whatever God has, whatever God's calling. God's calling was for Gideon to be raised up and win a great victory. God may have that. So what is the point? The point is this. Look to your Savior. Because there was one man in human history who could take every bit of success that was thrown at him and every bit of apparent failure and handle it within the will of God to build the kingdom of God. And his name was Jesus Christ. Jesus was tempted when he was taken by the devil up to a pinnacle and made to show all the glory of the world's kingdoms, the greatest success that a king could ever desire. And Satan said, you bow down and worship me and I'll give it to you. And in the moment of that transitory potential success, Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I'm aligned with him. What happened when great crowds were following him? Jesus never gave himself to them. He never allowed his heart to be captured or his focus to be shifted. How do we know that? Because in John 6, they left. They walked away. And what was Jesus' response when his church shrunk? Was it, oh no, how do we rebuild? How do we get these followers back? How do we start filling our pews again? No, what did he say? He looked at his 12 disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? Let me know. Are you going to leave? This was a man whose heart was entirely captured, not by success, not by earthly metrics of success or failure, but by the kingdom of God and the will and the, and the calling that God had given to him. And because of that, success didn't get to his head and failure didn't get to his heart. He simply was submitted to who and what God had called him to be. That means ultimately my encouragement for us tonight is not to dread success or to shy away from whatever calling has God has for us. It simply means watch out. Be careful. Remember who you are in Christ, which is nothing. But remember who Christ is in you, which is everything. Remember to guard your heart 
that whenever there is a step of what the world would perceive to be success in your personal life or ministry, that you remember that ultimately none of it is deserved, that all of it is in the grace of God, and that the moment you allow it to start affecting the way you think and act, it may be sowing the seeds of your greatest and your family's greatest destruction and tragedy. And ultimately, above all things, let's remember the words of Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Gideon should be a great source of inspiration and encouragement to us. He should also be a great warning about the snare of success. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this sober, sober reminder. A man who had accomplished so much for a short period of time, who brought rest and deliverance to your people, and yet also sowed the seeds of tragedy in his own life and in his family. A man who for whom the worship of Jehovah did not survive his death, at his death they quickly went back to idolatry. Father, we know that success can be our great enemy. The devil can use it to bring such temptation. And I just ask, Father, that you would open our eyes. Perhaps for some of us, success seems like a long way away in many areas of life. Keep us humble. Keep us focused on our calling. Perhaps for some of us, success is being tasted right now or it's right seemingly within our grasp. Father, keep us humble. Keep us grounded. Keep us trusting in your grace. Let's pause for a moment. Perhaps it's worth going back to those areas that you identified as being success for you your marriage, your family, your career, your bank account. And perhaps it's worth going back to each of them and saying, God, don't bring it. Don't bring it if it's going to cause me to fall. Perhaps it's worth looking at those areas and saying, God, keep me focused. Don't allow my heart to be captured by what I have received even now. Let's just take a little bit of time Allow the Spirit of God to speak to us on this subject.